Hey, everybody. Happy New Year and happy Epiphany. This is our Epiphany episode, the feast we celebrated yesterday and the official end of the Christmas liturgical season. So put your tree away. Or if you want, keep it up until February 2nd, Candlemas. I know some people do that. I don't care which one. You do you. Here's the deal. You probably know that we celebrate on Epiphany the Adoration of the Magi, the three kings who followed a star to find the child Jesus. You know the story. But traditionally, Epiphany is about more than that. Epiphany also celebrates the Lord's baptism in the Jordan River and the wedding at Cana, three events that through signs and wonders revealed Jesus as the Son of God. The word Epiphany is Greek, and it means revelation from above. This week on the program, we're talking about the three aspects of Epiphany, the three kings, the baptism of Jesus, and the wedding at Cana. First, we'll hear from a Trappist monk who teaches young monks how to make incense. And guess what? They still use frankincense, just like the three kings, huh? Then, because Epiphany celebrates the baptism of Jesus, we have a story about something called conditional baptism, and a priest tells us about the time he performed one. And we'll close out the podcast with the story of a Catholic who visited Cana, like the actual village of Cana in Israel, at a pivotal crossroads in his life. And it's a great story because it's about wine. You're listening to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. Stay with us. You've reached the CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. Welcome to CNA Newsroom. So I'm uh, Father Timothy Scott, a monk here of St. Joseph's Abbey in Spencer, Massachusetts. It's a a community of Trappist monks. You might remember St. Joseph's Abbey from a segment just last month in which we interviewed a Trappist priest named Father Emmanuel. The Trappists at St. Joseph's Abbey, where Father Emmanuel lives, work to support themselves. They make and sell beer, jam and jelly, priestly vestments, and incense. We have been making incense since the early 80s. We wanted some kind of industry that we could have that would be a simple thing that the monks could do, because part of our, our life is, a big part of our life is manual labor. So to have some kind of a simple product that we could make that's not as complicated as as the sewing that the brothers could do. A while back, a junior professed monk named Brother Anthony said he was interested in learning more about incense. So the monastery put him in charge of Project Incense. He started by reading a lot of books. Then he just started experimenting. And he would sit on the floor of the office with a mortar and pestle and pour different ingredients in there and experiment experiment with that And uh, until he was able to come up with something that... Uh, they were happy with. As luck or providence would have it, there was an herb dealer just a short drive from the monastery. An herb dealer. I didn't even know that was a thing. Just drive out of the monastery, go up one road into New Hampshire, and take one right. They had a big warehouse with big barrels of spices that we could go up there and pick out the ingredients that he wanted and come back and experiment. Once you have your herbs, the process of making incense is actually pretty simple. Father Timothy didn't give us an exact recipe. I mean, this is their business after all. But he told me that the monks begin with gums, things like dried sap, that act as binding agents for the incense. Frankincense is a dried sap, and myrrh is dried sap too. Once the monks have their base, they add essential oils, spices, 
and sometimes even dried flowers. So they just get all get mixed up into a bowl to the proportions that we're happy with. And, and then for us, that's, uh, that's pretty much it. The process of making incense seems simple enough. But Father Timothy said it takes a lot of trial and error to get the perfect incense recipe. In the early days, Brother Anthony would test out his experimental recipe in the Trappist liturgy. And then the brothers would give him feedback. And he told me the story of one of uh, the brothers in the early days when he was just starting, came up to him and said, smells like uh, menthol cough syrup. Had a little work to go on that with the first. <laughs> Over time, Brother Anthony developed a recipe the brothers decided would work for mass and mass production. They called it laudate, the imperative of the Latin verb meaning to praise. Marked by a spicy and citrusy fragrance. A few years after that, the Trappists released a new incense called cantica, or song. A richer, fuller, more floral character. So both of these are related to the idea of incense being a part of one's prayer and one's prayer being raised up to God. The Trappists released a special edition third option in the year 2000 called Jubilus, Jubilee. But the Jubilee year's over. Father Timothy said they don't sell it anymore. So yeah, so quite a bit of experimentation in in our actual liturgy, and we use it uh, quite a bit in our liturgy ourselves. So we're always testing and seeing if it's uh, up to the quality that we uh, we have as Holyrood Guild and and St. Joseph's Abbey product. Incense from Spencer Abbey is distinctive because of its texture. Incense is typically kind of produced into these dried pellets, but Spencer Abbey's incense has the consistency of potting soil. It's very pleasant to look at, actually, and has a very pleasant scent in itself. But it's, uh, it's this moist, earth-like looking substance. As far as I know, we're the only ones that are doing it, actually. I could be wrong, but uh, as far as I'm aware, we're the only ones who are doing it like this. And I think that was part of just Brother Anthony's insight, the way he worked with it. You keep all these flowers in there and spices, and I said the gums and the oils, that they're all maintain their, uh, their integrity. You know, so we cut them up so they're all about the same size. But they're all, if you look at it, you can see them in there. Father Timothy said the texture helps the ingredients maintain their individual scents. With the pellets, you have to apply heat in order to notice the, the smell. I suppose if you really came up close to it, it could smell it. But it's the charcoal and the lighting them that ignites in the smoke that gives the fragrance. But actually with ours, it's got a quite strong, noticeable smell just sitting like it is. So if you just open up, open up a bag of our incense, and you wouldn't even have to put your nose in there, and you would get quite a a robust uh, smell. So it's kind of nice that way. It's very supple. It's not a pellet, it's earthy. And it has a longing-lasting aroma, which I, I, I think is beautiful. This is Monsignor John C. Tosi. He's pastor of St. Luke Parish in Whitestone, New York. And he's a longtime customer of the Monk's Incense. The church smells <laughs> when you walk in. It lasts. If you have a funeral, you have a, you know, if you have a solemn mass, uh, there's that aroma that lasts. It just doesn't disappear. It doesn't flare up for two minutes and then go away. Before he was pastor of St. Luke Parish, Monsignor Tosi was director of liturgy in the Diocese of Brooklyn. He told us that incense is a big part of Catholic liturgy, one that often goes overlooked. The use of incense for me is part of the, the whole liturgical experience, vesture, music, 
candles and incense appealing to all the senses help us pray better so incense becomes important like any element of the liturgy we use things to express the divine mystery the beauty of our catholic faith is uh, the sense that uh, we're engaged as whole persons so the senses the spirit and so that we use these very um, various material and sensible objects that symbolize our prayer to God. The practice of burning incense during liturgies goes back to the Old Testament. We see uh, examples in, um, in Deuteronomy and, and Leviticus and uh, in Exodus, God instructs Moses to build an altar of incense. It was part of the, the Levitical tribes. Some families of the tribes were assigned to this to make the incense and to experiment with it and come up with the different ingredients that would go into it. Uh, Josephus tells us that there were as many as between four and 13 different ingredients that they would experiment with, that would come up with something that would add more smoke, that would add more fragrance to make it a more pleasant thing. You can also find incense in the Psalms. Father Timothy mentioned Psalm 140. Let my prayer arise like incense before you. Let my hands be lifted up before you like an evening sacrifice. So this idea that we're lifting, raising up our prayers to God, you know, there's this lovely fragrance that God smells, so to speak, uh, as they rise up uh, be- before him and is pleasing to him. And even in the New Testament. In the first chapter of Luke, Zechariah, the father of, of John the Baptist, is assigned to uh, uh, his priestly service to offer the incense in the sanctuary. So it's in the sanctuary offering the incense when the angel appears next to the altar and announces to him that, that Elizabeth is going to bear the son John. So it's, uh, incense is, is right there at, the, at a key moment in, in our salvation history in, in the scriptures. And then we also see references, for example, in the book of Revelation of the elders uh, offering incense uh, to God as part of the prayer of the saints. So what makes incense great? Monsignor Tosi says he looks for incense that's long-lasting, has a beautiful fragrance, and produces a lot of smoke. In some ways, it's a subjective uh, reality. You know, what smells nice to one person may not smell nice to another person. But I think in overall, there's a fragrance that should be pleasant and appealing that lifts our minds and hearts to God. It should be able to produce smoke. To me, it's, it's, it's really very disturbing when incense is used and nothing's coming out of the thurible. You know, why are we doing this? At the end of the day, Monsignor Tosi said he doesn't just buy incense from the monks because he likes the product. He also buys it because he likes the monks. I think the monks have a, have a vocation, a liturgical vocation. They uh, have a respect, a love for the liturgy that they celebrate beautifully. So for me, knowing that they are actually the ones doing it, making it, it's the work of their hands, is a very important reality. It's not just a job. It's not just something to make money. To me, that that was, I think, what draws me to them. Epiphany celebrates not only the adoration of the Magi, but also the baptism of the Lord. So we wanted to bring you an interesting baptism story, and we got talking about something called 
conditional baptism. If you don't know what that is, don't worry. A lot of people don't. But we asked a priest friend of ours, Father Alexander Lashchuk, to explain it. Here's CNA's managing editor, Carl Bunderson, and Father Alex. When we recite the creed during Mass, we say that we believe in one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Maybe you've never really thought about those words, but we as Catholics hold that once we've been baptized, we can never receive that sacrament again. We believe as Catholic Christians that baptism changes our very being. It changes who we are and how we exist. It incorporates us into the body of Christ. And because of that, we don't repeat it, just like we don't repeat confirmation and we don't repeat ordination. We don't repeat sacraments that receive what we call in scholastic theology, we use the traditional phrase of it leaves an indelible mark on our soul. It changes who we are. Um, And because of that, it's not repeated. Father Alex is a Ukrainian Catholic priest, a canon lawyer, and judicial vicar of seven dioceses in Ontario, Canada. He said baptism is valid if water flows over the recipient with an invocation of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if that's present, it doesn't matter, you know, who's conferring it, we recognize it as Catholic Christians, and that's something that's from the earliest traditions of the Church. You know, even Arians who questioned the divinity of Jesus Christ were not received into the Catholic Church, into the Nicene faith. They were not received by baptism, but they were received uh, by chrismation. Uh, by confirmation. So what happens when a person can't remember if they were baptized in the first place, or there's no record of their baptism? What if I think I was baptized, I went to Catholic school, but, you know, I don't know, there's no proof, we've checked all the parishes around, nobody has a record, there's no photos, everyone's dead, I actually don't know if I was baptized. In those cases, the person who wants to become Catholic, we would conditionally baptize. Conditional baptism has the same form as a regular baptism, but the minister changes some of the words to respect the belief that baptism cannot be repeated. Instead of saying, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, he says, if you are not yet baptized, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So all of our intentions here are that this is the case if you're not baptized. If you're baptized, I'm not intending to baptize you, and you're in fact not even intending to be baptized. Conditional baptisms are pretty rare, but Father Alex has actually performed one. I had one case where uh, I had a young couple that came for marriage. Father Alex said he recognized the couple from Sunday Mass at his parish in downtown Toronto. She was, um, uh, I guess, Ukrainian Catholic, and he uh, was not. And I mentioned to him, well, you know, listen, you come to church every Sunday, like, are you opposed to baptism? And he said, not at all. So they began preparations for baptism, and the man realized he maybe was already baptized. His father was now deceased, had, he thought, baptized him in the backyard. His mother was opposed to the baptism, so it was not done in a church. He thinks he was baptized in the backyard, but as a child, he has no memory of it. The father's not around to testify to it. We don't know what dad did. You know, did he baptize him in the name of the Trinity or in the name of Jesus Christ or just I baptize you or or who knows? So that's the circumstance that I had. So the fellow was very eager to be a practicing member of our parish and even was coming, just wasn't sure about his baptism. So Father Alex performed a conditional baptism in the months before the wedding. You know, every time we recite the creed, we say one baptism 
for the forgiveness of sins. And we probably don't think about what that means, but now we can think about that a little bit more. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Carl Bunderson. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll bring you the story of Rancho Loma Winery near Fort Worth, Texas. Stay with us. Hi, everyone. This is Father John Paul Mary, the Franciscan Missionaries of the Eternal Word. I'm the chaplain for EWTN employees. You may remember me from episode 18, The Pirate Nun. If you enjoyed listening to CNA Newsroom and CNA Editor's Desk as much as I do, and I have to say it's the highlight of my week, you can subscribe to both of these shows and get them delivered straight to your phone as soon as they're posted. Just search on your favorite podcast app for CNA Newsroom, tap the subscribe button, and then do the same for CNA Editor's Desk. Both shows are available on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and many more. And may the blessing of Almighty God be upon you this day, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And now back to the episode. When Ed Brandecker and his wife Roberta made a pilgrimage to the Holy Land in 2016, they were both at a crossroads in their lives. Both Ed and Roberta had long careers in medicine. Both had retired only a month before the pilgrimage. One day, they found themselves in the ancient village of Cana, at the spot where Christ performed his first miracle, turning water into wine at a wedding. To be at the site where you know, Jesus performed his first miracle was really profound. To be there and experience the the entire atmosphere, and, and it was actually a tear moving for me. So it was really great. Um, it was a great day. Ed and Roberta renewed their wedding vows, and then they prayed for God's guidance for their future. We went just within a month of our retiring, and so as we went, you know, we were opening ourselves up to this entirely new age in our lives. You know, we were going there when we were closing a chapter and opening a new chapter. When we were there, we were asking God, you know, prepare us for this next chapter. What's going to happen next? Ed and Roberta returned home to Abilene, Texas, and then they got a call. We were surprised, but we got an invitation to start this winery. It's important to understand that Ed and Roberta love wine, and they have for a really long time. My wife and I have always had a long-standing appreciation of wines and have traveled to lots of wine regions around the world. I asked Ed if he was able to try any wine in Cana while he was there. He wasn't, unfortunately. Although we did did have some wine, and we did have some wine in Israel, um, so that was interesting. There were some really... um, Nice quality wines, Cabernet, grown up in the mountains where it's cooler. Sometime in the early 2000s, Ed and Roberta began to ask themselves if their love of wine could become something more than just enjoying a glass with dinner. Saying, okay, well, what really goes into making wine good? How do you cultivate grapes properly? How do you then learn the science? They each signed up for two-year certificate programs in wine growing and enology, or the science of winemaking. They even started a small vineyard on their property in Abilene. 
So when they were approached in 2016 about starting a new winery in Texas, Ed and Roberta jumped at the idea. Ed said he was feeling up for a challenge. Can we make high quality, you know, premium wine in Texas that we'd be proud of? That was the beginning of Rancho Loma Winery in Coleman, Texas. Which is kind of in the heart of Texas, a small town about um, two and a half hours from Fort Worth. Rancho Loma Winery is owned and operated by a team of people, including Ed and Roberta. I oversee the winemaking, so my contribution is guiding our wine program, the winemaking, working with the consultant, making sure everything's ready for production. So, um, but it is, it's a team effort. The consultant is from southern France, and he visits two to three times a year to help Rancho Loma fine-tune their winemaking process. So you cannot make good wine unless you have really good grapes. Um, And so we really start in the vineyard and making sure that we have optimal uh, viticultural practices to allow, um, you know, the quality to translate into the winemaking. Being that we're in Texas um, and we are a warm climate, we tend to work with grape varietals that do well um, in other warm climates. Like southern France and Spain, but... Most of our grapes are actually coming from the Lubbock area, out near the high plains of Texas. The result is a collection of dry rosés, reds, and whites, and blends that Ed believes have a flavor that is uniquely Texas. So our goal with the wineries to make premium wines that that represent um, Texas. And and wine is always site-specific wines from France or different from wines from Napa or different from Oregon. And so our goal is always to to produce something that speaks of the region from which it's grown. Since its start in 2016, Rancho Loma Vineyards has won numerous awards. The first year we won an award for the best white Rhone wine in in an international competition, and it came from Little Coleman, Texas, so it was a really exciting start for us. And they're planning on opening a second location in Fort Worth this year. So we're not really retired because (laughs) the winery uh, is... uh, almost a full-time occupation. You know, there's so many aspects to it. I asked Ed if he ever thinks about what kind of wine they would have served at the wedding at Cana. Well, he hadn't thought about it. But if he had to make a guess... My guess was if I were there, it would probably have been a dry red wine, I, I would think. Normally, if you leave wine sweet, they can have the risk of developing problems. So I bet just by practice and by convention, they they made all their wines fairly dry. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Kate Oliveira. That's our show, everybody. Tomorrow is my 14th wedding anniversary. I got married on Epiphany at an Epiphany Mass, January 7th, 2006. So, Kate... Flynn, if you happen to be listening to this podcast, happy anniversary. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. We're produced and edited by Kate Oliveira and Joan McKeown. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. Special thanks this week to all of our guests. I hope we have earned the privilege of your time. 